How many understand and believe that truth that we just sung about, that God is able? He is able, and uh, what a blessing. I'm thankful that you were here this morning, 1 John chapter number 3. 1 John number 3. Let's pray together this morning, and we're going to get into the Word of God today. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the opportunity we have uh, to hear it preached right now in this moment. God, I pray that we wouldn't take this for granted. God, I thank you for the music that we have sung uh, today. Uh, Father, I'm thankful that you are faithful. I'm thankful, God, that you are able. God, I'm thankful for your love and how it has lifted us. Uh, God, I thank you this morning for being so, so good. God, watch over us and lead us in this moment. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter number 3. Now, the United States Treasury Department, I was reading this this week, has a special group of men whose job it is to track down counterfeiters. Naturally, these men need to know a counterfeit bill when they see it. But how do they identify fake bills? Oddly enough, they are not trained by spending hours examining counterfeit money. Rather, these men study the real thing. They become so familiar with authentic currency that they can spot a counterfeit by simply looking at it or often simply by feeling it. This is the approach this morning of 1 John chapter 3, which warns us that in today's world, there are counterfeit Christians, children of the devil, as it calls them in verse 10. Now, remind us that most of the challenges within the church come from within the church, not from outside of the church. The devil's in the business of raising up his own children to cause and wreak havoc. But instead of listing the evil characteristics of Satan's children, the Bible gives us a clear description of God's children. Rather than us spending this entire time this morning examining counterfeit, we're going to spend our time examining the authentic, the obvious. And we see that the contrast between these two is clear, counterfeit, and real. The key verse of 1 John chapter 3 is probably verse 10 that says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. A true child of God practices righteousness and loves other Christians despite their differences. A quick read of the first 10 verses may alarm us and and cause us to be a little bit afraid, especially verse 6 and verse 9 that say, No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And then verse 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Uh, Very literally in the Greek language, John is talking about the practice of sin. To sin consistently is a way of life. It does not refer to committing an occasional sin. Uh, Would you agree with me this morning? It is clear that no Christian is sinless. No Christian is, but God does expect a true believer to sin less, not to sin habitually. 
heroes of the faith, we know this to be true throughout the Bible, we know that heroes of the faith sinned, did they not? We know that uh, Abraham lied about his wife, didn't he? Uh, We know that his son Isaac lied about his wife, didn't he? Uh, How many understand this truth, and I can stop right here and preach a minute, uh, that your sin always affects those that come after you? Because deception ran in that family, did it not? On On a very deep level. Isaac lied about his wife as well. Uh, Moses lost his temper and disobeyed God. Y'all remember that? Peter, how about what did Peter do? He denied God three times, didn't he? Uh, he lived, uh, he allowed himself to give into a weak moment and sinned against God. The point is this, uh, that these men of God, they sinned, but it was not the practice of their life. It was an incident, a moment in their life, but it was not their practice. It was totally contrary to their normal habits. And when they sinned, what took place in their life? They recognized it and repented before God and rested in his forgiveness. Look, an unsaved person, even if they profess to be a Christian, and many, many out there that profess to be a Christian do not possess Christ. Even if they profess to be a Christian, but they live a life of habitual sin, they are proving themselves to be a counterfeit. Sin is the normal, especially the The sin of unbelief is the normal practice of their life. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. The lost person... You and I, before Christ, had no uh, divine resources, if you will, to draw on. And so the lost person's profession of faith, if any, is not real. And this is the distinction that John has in view in our text this morning. A true believer, this is directly from the Word of God today, God's man, the Apostle John, a true believer does not live in habitual, habitual sin. He may commit sin, an occasional wrong act, but sin is not the practice of their life. The difference is that a true Christian, a true believer, knows God and has a relationship with the Heavenly Father. A counterfeit Christian may talk about God and get involved in religious activities, but he does not really know God. The person who has been born of God through faith in Christ knows God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And because he knows them, he lives a life of obedience, and he does not practice sin. So as we examine the real thing this morning, as opposed to examining the counterfeit, John gives us three compelling reasons why a believer lives a holy life. Three compelling reasons why a believer lives a holy life. I want you to notice number one this morning. Believers live a holy life because God... The Father. We, believers, live a holy life because God the Father loves us. Look at verses 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
Verse 1 could be translated, Behold, but peculiar, out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. Aren't you thankful that God the Father loves you in an out-of-this-world kind of way? While we were His enemies, God sent His Son Jesus to die for us. The whole wonderful redemptive plan of salvation was brought about because God loves you and He loves me. I want you to notice in verse 1 we see what we are. John says that we would be called the children of God and such we are. Look, children of God is not just some high-sounding name that we have. It is the reality of every believer in Christ's life. You are a child of God. Hey, aren't you thankful? We are God's children. And those outside of Christ, there are some maybe in this room this morning, you don't understand the thrilling reality of that kind of relationship with God. And that's expected because you don't even understand God and what all He's done for you. Only a person who knows God through faith in Christ can fully appreciate what it means to be called a child of God. That is what we are. And one of the greatest things we can do as believers is understand who we are and what we are in Christ. We are His children. I'm His child. He's my Father. That's what John tells us we are. In verse 2, we see what we will be. Notice what it says. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not, not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. John here in verse 2, he's undoubtedly talking about the time when Jesus comes back for his church. I stop to say again, because this is a theme throughout 1 John, Jesus is coming again. You mark it down. We may not know the day or the hour, but Jesus is coming again. Somebody say amen if you believe it. He is coming again. We know this, and back in 1 John 2.28, John had mentioned this in last week's message as an incentive for holy living. And now he repeats it again. God's love doesn't stop with the new birth, with being born again. How many are thankful that God's love continues throughout our lives and takes us right up to the return of Jesus Christ when he comes back for you and me that know Christ? When Jesus comes again, all true believers will see him and will become like him, John said. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, For our citizenship is heaven. How many understand this world is not my home? Somebody say amen. Our citizenship is heaven, Paul said, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. How many are thankful that this understanding this means and what John has said, we will be like him. It means that we're going to have a new, a glorified body suited for an eternal existence with Jesus for all eternity. How many are thankful that one day you're going to get up and you're not going to have no more pains no more? Somebody say amen. There ain't going to be no more coughing. There ain't going to be no more sinus infections. That's a little uh, dear to me right now because I'm dealing with all kinds of that stuff right now, if you can't tell. In fact, I I got a cough drop in my water this morning. I figure it may help me a little bit suppress a cough while I'm preaching. I don't know, but we'll see. doesn't taste too good. So if y'all see me make faces, y'all know what that is. But how many are thankful one day we're going to have a glorified body? 
How many are thankful we're going to have a perfect existence? I talked with the young people about this today. And look, and let's just squelch our Looney Tunes mentality of what heaven is. You will not be. And maybe, I don't know, maybe this is disappointing for some of you. But you will not be floating on a cloud for all eternity playing a harp. That's not going to happen. You walk outside these church doors and you look at the beauty of God's creation and you remember it in this original state. You try to reflect on it in this original perfect state. No more death, no more decay or corruption. You get a picture of your eternal existence with God, which will be on the new earth. He will come down and he will dwell with us. Our family members that have died and gone on, we will see them. We will know who they are. Our relationships will continue into eternity. Hey, what? guess what? There's going to be work in heaven. But how many understand you're going to have a job for all eternity that you like and that you enjoy? Hey, and guess what? You're going to have a boss that treats you fairly for all eternity. The things we enjoy and love. Many of those will be in heaven. There will be discovery. There will be excitement. There will be activity in heaven. Our relationships, for those of us in this room that know Jesus, we have relationships now, but what wonderful, glorious thought is that our relationships will continue for all eternity in heaven one day. That's where we will be. Somebody say hallelujah. John reminds us of what we are. He reminds us of what we will be. But the third thing is this. He reminds us of what we should be in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Now listen to what he says. He says, And everyone who has this hope, this hope of heaven, being like Jesus, having a glorified body, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. How many understand that Jesus is coming back and knowing that reality, we should keep our lives clean? Knowing that the Lord is coming back for me, I should keep my life clean as his was clean. The primary problem in the life of believers today, and don't miss this, the primary problem in your life and mine at times is unresolved sin. Unresolved sin. Many would be amazed, now listen to me, at what would take place in their life if they would get into the Bible regularly. I'm telling you, you get into the Word of God, it'll change your life. Many would be amazed if they would get into the pages of the Bible regularly and take their sin seriously. I shared Wednesday night, I was talking with my brother-in-law, Jonathan. Many of you know him well. And he shared with me a quote that he read in a book. And boy, it's going to be one of those quotes that stick with me for the rest of my life. Y'all finish this phrase for me. We should love the sinner and hate the... Okay, let's change that. We should love the sinner and hate our own sin. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Well, what would change in our life if we were as picky and critical of our own sin as we are the sin of somebody else? Somebody say, oh, me. <laughs> it's time we get focused, laser focused on who we should be, as John has declared. If we have this hope, we purify ourselves as he is pure. A lot would change if we would learn to hate our own sin. Hebrews 12, 1 says, 
Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look, everything that John is telling us this morning, what we are, what we will be, and who we should be, remind us of God's love. Because the Father loves us, He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. We are children of God. Because He loves us, He wants us one day to be with Him for all eternity. Salvation from start to finish is an expression of the love of God. Look, we are saved by His grace. But the provision for our salvation originated in the love of God for all of us. And since we have experienced the love of the Father, we have no desire, true believers have no desire to live in sin. We have a desire to purify ourselves. Three compelling reasons for living holy. God the Father loves us. Number two, God the Son died for us. Look at verses 4 through 8. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sins is, uh, sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. John changes direction from talking about the future appearance of Christ to his past appearance as Savior in verse 5. And he gives us two reasons that Jesus came and died. And the two reasons that John gives is to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. For a child of God, sin indicates that he does not understand or appreciate what Jesus did for him on the cross. When we choose to sin, we are disregarding the fact of Christ's death for sin on the cross. I mean, think about it. We are indulging and enjoying something that Jesus came and died for in that moment. We see, first of all, that John tells us Christ appeared to take away our sins in verses 4 through 6. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. What is sin? What is sin? I think is a good question to ask in this message. What is sin? In the scriptures, we find many definitions of what sin is. Romans 14, 23 says, what is not of faith is sin. Proverbs 24, 9 says, the thought of foolishness is sin. James 4, 17 says, to him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. 1 John 5, 17 says, all unrighteousness is sin. We see that John in our text defines sin as what? He defines it as lawlessness. Lawlessness. 
John has talked a lot in our series through about the defilement of sin, and here he talks about the defiance of sin. We've talked about defilement a lot, but here he begins talking about defiance. Notice that the emphasis here is not on sins, plural, but sin, singular, in verse 4. Because God is love, God does not mean, it does not mean, now listen, that he has no rules or regulations for his family. Sometimes you hear that, that God is love, and man, you can just, well, I can get away with anything because God loves me. I can just kind of live free and do what I want to because God, God is love. And that's kind of almost the message you feel like some give today about the love of God. But no, like any good father who loves their kids, God has boundaries. He has regulations for his family to follow for our protection and our, and our safety. Notice 1 John, look at, look at chapter 2 and verse number 3. Look at 2 and verse 3. <coughs> by this, chapter 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him. If we do what? Keep his commandments. 1 John three twenty two. Take a look at, jump down to verse 22 of chapter 3. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we do what? We keep his commandments and do the things that are what? Pleasing in his sight. Pleasing in his sight. Now look at 1 John 5, 2. It says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we do what? Love God and what? Observe his commandments. Keep his commandments. So we see a theme here. We see a theme. Look, God has regulations for his kids and, and, and things, boundaries for his family. Now, I want to make it clear. When we see commandments here in, in, in 1 John, some of our minds immediately go to the Ten Commandments. Can I tell you that nobody in this room can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly? Nobody can keep those. Nobody can adhere to all of those laws. And so I want to make it clear, look, God's children, we are not in bondage to the Old Testament law. Because listen, Christ fulfilled it all. Because he's the only one who could keep it perfectly. So he fulfilled it and he set us free to live in liberty according to Galatians 5. But God's children, now listen to me, are not to be lawless either. Are not to be lawless in their lives either. They are not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.21 says, Look, sin is a matter of the will. For us to assert our will against God's will is rebellion. And it seems as if in the lives of believers, there's just this rebellious attitude and spirit today. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's kind of the way it feels. There's this attitude of rebellion. You see, rebellion's the root of sin. It's not that sin reveals itself in lawless behavior, but that, but that the very essence of sin, John is saying, is lawlessness. No matter what someone's outward actions may be, a sinner's inward attitude is one of rebellion. My dad was riding with his little girl, Judy, one day in the car. And I don't know, you know I can identify with this dad and his little girl. Because during the course of their ride, Judy decides to stand up in her car seat while dad is driving. 
Has that ever happened to you? I don't know that any of my kids have ever uh, stood up. Um, but I'll tell you what, um, Tyler threw his shoes out the window one time. I told you all about that. I had a lady flag me down. I thought I had done something wrong. I'm like, somebody's road rage fit right now. So I just kept going, stopped at the stoplight. And, and then she's getting out of the car. I'm like, oh, no, I've really messed up. This lady wants to fight. You know, so I got out and rolled my sleeves up. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I, 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 said, I just got, you know, ma'am, are you okay? She said, your son threw his shoes out the window back down the way there. And so we had to go find shoes. This little girl, Judy, decided to stand up in her car seat. And her dad turns around and commands her, Judy, sit down. She refuses. So again, her daddy looks at her, Judy, sit down. She refuses. He looks in the rearview mirror, Judy, if you don't sit down and buckle up and get in your seat, he says, I'm going to spank you when we stop. I'm going to stop right here and give, give a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way. When you tell your kids you're going to do something, you better do it. Better do it. Many times I've had to apologize for my inconsistency to my kids. But he says, I'm going to stop, and I'm going to spank you if you don't sit down in your seat and buckle up. So reluctantly, Judy sat down and buckled up in her seat. Dad keeps on down the road, and a few minutes later, here's what Judy said. She said, Daddy, she said, I'm still standing up on the inside. <laughs> hey, look, funny little story. But that's what sin is. That's the root of sin. So the root of sin is this lawless, rebellious attitude. Even though there was outward obedience, there was still inner rebellion. And this is the attitude and essence of sin. That is John's point. That is John's point. I want you to notice verse 6 this morning. He says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. You see, here's the idea of what John is conveying. Anyone who abides in the sinless Christ cannot continue living a sinful lifestyle. He's received a new nature in Christ, and his life must give evidence to that new nature that he has received. In no way is John saying that if a Christian commits a single little act of sin, that single act is evidence that they've never truly been born again. Again, we've established God's people have sinned throughout the ages. But the practice of their life is not sin. And that attitude and that type of interpretation simply does not fit the context and is contrary to 1 John 1, 6 through 10 when John deals with sin in the life of a believer. How a believer should handle sin in their life. John's message is that no one who is abiding in Christ will choose to live a life of sin. If you're a true believer you will not choose to live a life of habitual sin. See, Christ appeared to take away our sin, but the second thing he points out is that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Look at verses 7 and 8. He said this, Little children, make sure no one deceives you that no one who practices righteousness is right, that the one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Look, the logic here is clear. This is not some deep truth that we're having to dig out this morning. The logic that John uses, if a person knows God, they will obey God. If a person uh, belongs to the devil, they'll obey the devil. That's very simple and logical and practical truth he's sharing with all of us. You see, the devil is our enemy, number one. 
Somebody say amen. He is out. He is our enemy. Do you believe that? He is our enemy. But let me remind us that the church, Christ and his church, are the, are the devil's enemy, number one. We are on his list, if you will. We're at the top of his list. His main desire is to oppose Christ and to tear down God's people. The contrast here is between Christ, who has no sin, as John has stated clearly, and the devil, who can do nothing but sin, as John also has stated clearly. Many scholars believe that Satan was once one of the highest angels placed by God over the earth and over the angels, and that he sinned against God and was cast down. If you want to read that account, you can go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. Speak to the event of Lucifer falling from heaven. There are some things about our enemy though that I, I want to make us aware of. Do you believe we should know who our enemy is? We should know things about him so we can be on guard and be aware. Because he is a, a roaring lion. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he's after you and he's after me. Here are some things about the enemy that we need to be aware of this morning. Number one, Satan is not eternal as God is. Satan is a created being. He was not created sinful. His present nature is a result of his past rebellion. Again, go to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and read about that. Satan is not eternal. Now, everybody, listen to me. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan is not all-knowing. Do not give attributes to Satan that are only reserved for God. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not everywhere at the same time. If he's at someone's house down the road, he can't be here this morning. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. Those are reserved for God. But he does have an army of evil spirits called demons. A third of the angelic hosts fell with him. And they make it possible for possible for him to work in many places at one time. Satan is a rebel, but Christ is the obedient son of God. And Christ's death and his resurrection declared victory over Satan and his demons. So I want to stop here and say this, that no believer in this room has to live under the power and under the oppression of Satan. We have victory through Christ. It's time we stop giving the devil all of the publicity in our life for all of our issues and understand that the only way I give him any leeway in my life is if I allow it because I'm a child of God. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and what does he have to do? He's got to flee. We have power through Christ. Look, when you're tempted, uh, when you're struggling, when you're emotional, when you're hurting, when you're believing all kinds of lies that the devil's feeding your mind about your husband and your kids and your family and your church and all kinds of nonsense, you speak the name Jesus, he's got to flee. How many understand there's power in the name of Jesus and we don't need to submit to the devil or live under his authority? Look, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Look, Satan has no power over you if you're a believer. So live in victory. Because Jesus, if you really believe that Jesus' death and his resurrection declared victory, then you need to live in victory. Do you really believe that this morning? He came to destroy the works of the devil. And I want to make sure we understand this. The word destroy in the Greek language does not mean annihilate. It does not mean annihilate. 
because we know that Satan's still at work right now today. This word means to render inoperative, to rob of power. Satan has not yet been annihilated, but listen, one day he will be. One day he will be. But his power has been reduced and his weapons have been impaired. He is still a mighty enemy, but he is no match for the power of God. Because again, greater is he that is in us than he that's in the world. Look, reasons for a holy life. God the Father loves us. God the Son died for us. And number three and lastly, God the Holy Spirit lives in us. Look at verses 9 and 10 and we'll be finished this morning. No one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, why is it that no one that is born of God practices sin? Why does no one born of God practice sin? Because they have a new nature within them. And that new nature cannot practice sin. John referred to this new nature as his seed. When a person receives Christ as their Savior... There's tremendous spiritual changes that begin to take place in their life. He's given a new standing before God. Being accepted as righteous in God's sight, this new standing is called justification. The Christian is set apart for God's own purposes, to live for His glory, uh, to live for the glory of God. And this new position is called sanctification. And it has a way of changing from day to day because one day we are much closer to Christ. And we obey Christ much more readily. In other days, we may, can have, we may have setbacks in our walk of faith. But I think the most dramatic change in the new believer is what we call regeneration. The believer is born again into the family of God. The word regeneration, re, means, uh, means again. And uh, generation means birth. So very literally, regeneration is rebirth or born again. You see, justification, regeneration is born again. Justification is new standing before God. Sanctification is being set apart for God or to God. And regeneration means new nature, God's nature, born again. Look, the only way to enter God's family is by trusting Christ and experiencing the new birth. That's it. 1 John 5, 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Look, we are saved by faith. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. In the miracle of the new birth, the Holy Spirit imparts life, new life, God's life to the believing sinner. And as a result, the individual is born into the family of God. And just as physical, uh, in our physical lives, as kids exhibit the nature of their parents, so God, God's children exhibit His nature. And the divine seed is in them. A Christian has an old nature from his physical birth and a new nature from his spiritual birth. And the New Testament contrasts these two natures and gives them various names. You understand, there's still a war going on within the believer. The new nature and the old nature. In Romans, it's referred to as the old man. In Colossians, the new man is referred to. In Galatians, we see the flesh and the spirit. In 1 Peter, we see the corruptible seed. Here in 1 John, we see God's seed. The old nature produces sin, but the new nature leads one into a holy life. And as Christians, it's our responsibility to live according to the new nature. 
Not the old nature. We learned about that in Sunday school this morning. We're to put on some things in our life. Put on Jesus Christ and put to death the old man. There was a converted Native American. He explained it this way. He said, I have two dogs living in me, a mean dog and a good dog. He said, they're always fighting. The mean dog wants me to do bad things and the good dog wants me to do good things. He said, do you want to know which dog wins? He said, the one I feed the most. The one that I feed the most. Look, a Christian who feeds the new nature from the word of God will have the power to live a godly life. Look, I'm not going to sit here and say that all your struggles and all your challenges and issues of life will go away. But I'll tell you this. You'll have power like you've never experienced if you simply get into the Word of God. So, preacher, he talks about that all the time. Talks about it all the time. Well, you know what? Be thankful you got a pastor that does talk about that all the time. Because I'm telling you, most of our issues would be resolved if we would simply be obedient and get into God's Word and let His Word have its way in our life. And nobody in this room has an excuse of why they can't. Nobody. Challenging our young people every week in Sunday school, get into the Word of God. Let it become a habit. It'll change your life. Nobody has an excuse. We need to be in the Word of God because we need to feed the new nature. The reason why we lose so often to the old nature is because it's what we feed the most. It's what we strengthen the most. Look, you'll have power if you feed the new nature. Psalms 119, 9-11 says this. Now, before I read these verses, I, I would dare say that every person in this room takes a bath every day. It's a great place to say amen. That's a great place. If not every day, most, most days, we take a bath. Because our physical man needs cleansing. Church, and so does the inner man. In Psalms 119, 9 through 11, we read this last night in the prayer meeting. We read the entirety of Psalms 119 together in the prayer meeting at my house. What a blessed time that was. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word have I treasured in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. That I might not sin against you. Another thing that most of us do, if not all of us do, every single day of our lives is we look in a mirror. We look in a mirror. Why? Because we want to make sure that everything's okay. We want to examine ourselves and make sure everything is okay. Last night, Amanda leaned over while we're at my house, and I had a puff in my hair. I hadn't seen a mirror in a while. I'm like, has that been there the whole time? People at the house, I got one of them little puffs that melt in your mouth for babies in my hair. You see, we, we examine ourselves in a mirror to make sure everything is okay. In James chapter 1, 22 through 25, it refers to the Word of God as a mirror. And would you agree that every day of our lives, as we look into the mirror of the Bible, it cleanses us, and as we look into it as a mirror, we're able to examine ourselves to confess sin, to live in God's forgiveness, to see areas in my life that need growth and need attention. The mirror of the Word of God reveals a lot about us that we can grow in each day of our lives. 
And if we refuse to look into the mirror of the Word of God, what happens is our inner man becomes unclean, and it breeds infection and spiritual sickness in our life. Look what leads to backsliding. The starting place of backsliding is neglect of the Bible. When you begin to neglect the Bible, you're starting to travel down a slippery slope. In your marriage, your home, your family, you are traveling down a slippery slope. Neglecting the Word of God is a starting place for backsliding. We've heard it that Bible will keep, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. How does the child of God overcome the desires of the old nature? How do we live in victory and feed the new nature? I challenge everyone here today, begin each day in prayer. Choose to yield your body as a living sacrifice to God, as Romans 12:1 says. Choose to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5:18 tells us. We, we're no, told nowhere to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. The moment you got saved, the indwelling presence of God through the Holy Spirit lives with inside of you. And Ephesians 5:18 says, and do not be drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a command to obey, not a request to ask for. Choose to be filled with the Holy Spirit each day of your life. Feed your inner man through the Word of God. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, path, and depend on the power of the Holy Spirit in the inner man as you go throughout your day. Temptation will come, but turn to Christ for victory. How many understand Jesus always provides a way of escape when you're tempted? He always does. A Sunday school teacher was explaining the Christian's two natures, the old and the new, to a class of teenagers. Our old nature came from Adam, the teacher explained, and our new nature comes from Christ, who is called the last Adam. And he had the class read 1 Corinthians 15, 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. This means there are two Adams living in me, said one of the teenagers. That's right, the teacher replied. And what is the practical value of this truth, the teacher asked. And as is the case sometimes when you're teaching teenagers, the class goes silent for a few minutes. And then a student speaks up and says, this idea of the two Adams really helps me in fighting temptation, he said. When temptation comes knocking at my door, if I send the first Adam to answer it, I'll sin. But if I send the last Adam, I'll get the victory. So a question, let's all stand to our feet this morning as we begin to close this service. Who are you sending to answer the door of temptation in your life? The first Adam or the last Adam? A true believer does not practice sin. A counterfeit believer cannot help but practice sin because they do not have God's new nature with inside of them. Questions to consider this morning. And I want to remind us, these words that John is writing were written not so we could check on other people, but so we could check on ourselves. Each of us this morning must answer honestly before God, do I have the divine nature within me or am I merely pretending to be a Christian? The second question is, do I cultivate this divine nature through daily Bible reading and prayer? If not, why not? Would you confess it as sin this morning? Has my unconfessed sin defiled my inner man? Am I willing to confess and forsake it in my life? Do I allow my old nature to control my thoughts and desires, or does the divine nature rule me?
When temptations come, do I play with them? Or do I flee from them? A life that is real and honest with God about these vital issues will experience new power and victory in their life in the days ahead. Honestly answering these questions could lead to a wonderful renewal in your life this morning and excitement in your life of faith that maybe you've not experienced in a while. I challenge every person here this morning to be obedient to what God leads you to do this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word today. And God, I pray today that we would get a hold of these three compelling reasons to live holy lives. Because God, that is the evidence of our authentic faith. And Father, I pray that, Lord, if if you've revealed sin in the life of believers, that God, today we would make it right. That we would confess it and forsake it. God, I pray that if there's one here today, God, they're they're pretending to be saved and they're, they're not. I pray that that, that, God, you would work in them, in their hearts, and in their life. Father, I pray that you would have your way in this moment. Allow this message to go beyond our ears, God, into our hearts, and help us to live out these truths each day. Help us to honestly evaluate these questions, and, God, help us to live in victory. Father, help us to put on the new man and put to death the old man. Father, I love you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As Brother Eric leads us in singing today, if you need to be saved, you want to know that heaven's your home, please come talk to me. You can do that now. You can do it after the service. But please know Jesus before it's too late. And I invite all Christians this morning to come to the altar. If God's dealing with your heart, I invite you. The altar's open. You can do it right there where you stand. But spend some time in reflection today over what God's doing in your heart through this message. Father, be with us during this time. Help us to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.
we love you this morning. God, thank you for the truth of your word today. God, be with us as we leave this place and use us for your glory. Lord, help us to live holy as Jesus is holy. Help us to make a difference in someone's life and point them to Christ. Father, we thank you. We give you praise for this time here today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask Brother Randy Orgeron to close us in prayer.